Welcome to Dynamo Discussions. On today's episode... Graham Bredemeyer. Uh, I'm the founder of Collider. So we've all heard of 3D printing, but it hasn't really lived up to the hype that it originally got when it really first hit the scene. But Collider really is using 3D printing to shake things up by combining it with traditional manufacturing processes. So it's not quite fully 3D printing, and it's not quite old school. It's right there in the middle. So Graham is going to talk about what Collider does, but he's also going to talk about where 3D printing is heading and what's it actually doing to disrupt manufacturing. So tune in, and I hope you enjoy. Okay, so let's start from the beginning. Where do you think this really all began? So, I mean, I've always been, you know, interested in tech kind of my whole life. And uh, I also found kind of building a business pretty interesting. Um, my dad started a business when I was in middle school. And so that really sparked my interest in that side of things. Um, but I got my first exposure to uh, manufacturing process that we all call 3D printing mm -hmm. uh, with industrial machines uh, in high school. We actually had an industrial 3D printer, so we were very lucky. Uh, that, that really opened my mind up to, you know, some different ways to think about manufacturing and to think about design. And it also uh, kind of steered my, my, the way I thought about, you know, what I wanted to do with my career because I was that intrigued with it. And so, um, you know, went to college for mechanical and electrical engineering. Seemed like a good combination to get into that field. Uh, but really, once I got into it and, and got deeper into the you know industrial side of that technology, what I learned was uh, there really wasn't a good educational pathway mm -hmm. to go down if you were really you know interested in additive manufacturing technology um, or you know as we call it, 3D printing. Um, programs are just now starting to get built out. So instead, I started working with businesses that were using that technology, uh, got exposed to it that way, um, got very hands-on experience, worked with everything from, you know, $2,000 at-home 3D printers to $1.5 million uh, metal printers. That ended up landing me, you know, a great job working for the biggest, what they call a service bureau in the world. So a company who takes in part files from people all over the world and makes thousands of parts every single day, ships them back out the door, all made with 3D printers. And what were you doing? What was your role there? Um, so I started out working uh, more on the service side of things with strategic accounts. Um, and so Shapeways was the company I was working for. And so, you know, a certain number of their best-selling models make up for a really large part of their revenue stream. Uh, and so you wanted to have the highest manufacturing success rate with those models. And so I would work with designers to tweak their files to make sure that they would have the highest print success rate total. Mm -hmm. um, but towards the end of my time at that job, I also did a little bit of technical development um, on the material side of things, helped develop some processes that are still in use today, um, helped do some things that work towards um, getting more end product-like parts out of 3D printing technology because that's, that's not a thing that you just get out of most industrial 3D printing technologies today. Um, so that's what I did there. And that led to a lot of other contract work, which was fantastic, and, and working a lot with just traditional manufacturing companies. Um, and I realized pretty quickly that the 3D printing industry had kind of been chasing its own tail um, and still continues to, which is, um, you know, they work, typically you're going to get parts, you know, that, that look like what you would want your end part to look like, uh, but they don't have the same material properties because they're not made out of the same materials. They're 
specialized for the type of machine that they work with and things. And so, uh, which was an interesting thing for me, right? Because uh, in the 3D printing industry, it's all I ever heard about were companies working on developing these new materials and new ways of working, uh, new ways of printing parts and whatnot. Uh, but when you talk to manufacturers, you realize that wasn't their problem. They're, these guys weren't facing a materials crisis, right? They could make parts all day and at a, at a pretty good price point, assuming they were making enough of them um, and they could make them in great materials. Um, and so, you know, I saw kind of an opportunity, which was, hey, you know, 3D printing actually isn't very great uh, compared to, man- to traditional manufacturing when it comes to like making really good quality parts. Um, but what it is really good at is changing geometry, whereas traditional manufacturing had a big problem with that, right? So all these manufacturers, while they didn't complain about materials, they complained about their tooling. And so, okay, I'm going to spend anywhere from 12000 to $100,000 on a metal tool to stamp out and make, you know, a million parts or 100,000 parts or whatever. Um, those are long lead time things, very expensive. And so uh, the problem was if you wanted 10 parts or you wanted 10 million parts, you needed to spend the, the same amount of money mm-hmm. to get started with these tools. And so there's kind of this underserved group or, or really a group that's just not served where if you're making a couple thousand of a thing today or a couple hundred of a thing today, uh, you're in a really tight spot where even with a fully amortized tool, your part cost per part might be in the couple hundred dollar range. So you're, just so I make sure yeah. I understand, a lot of people think of 3D printing print, actually manufacturing parts, but you're manufacturing things for the people who are manufacturing things? <laughs> uh, sort of. Uh, so, so we are, so, so to get to kind of Collider, I guess. Yeah, do um, I mean, what we do is uh, we, we have a, we've developed a process, a manufacturing device that produces parts. Um, hesitant to call it 3D printing, hesitant to call it traditional manufacturing. It sits somewhere in the middle. Basically, what we do is we leverage 3D printing for what it's very good at, which, again, is changing geometry. Uh, it, that's the thing it can do. It's as easy as uploading a file. Um, and we use it for almost nothing else. Uh, so what we do is we uh, print a mold of a part, and then we, in the same device, inject it with traditional manufacturing materials using a traditional manufacturing process. Uh, we do some tweaks to the 3D printing process to get better surface quality and to make those molds extremely fast compared to traditional 3D printing um, on the order of anywhere from 10 to 100x, um, wow. the current speeds in that space. Um, and then we, we're spitting out parts that are identical to the parts that they would get out of their metal mold or their silicone mold. Um, and so it's it, we call it, it's kind of like a sacrificial mold. It's kind of a sacrificial shell. It's a one-off <laughs> thing. We print it, we inject it, you dissolve it, you're left with parts. Um, but when you're doing it this way, you can get the cost of each sacrificial mold down to a low enough price point that it's cost competitive up to a few thousand parts, which allows us to serve, again, that underserved market of people who want to make only a few, a few thousand things or a couple hundred things, um, or opens up entirely new possibilities for customized products that never existed before. All of a sudden, you can cost-effectively make shoe soles that are perfect for your foot or um, in the medical device space if, you're, if you've got a sleep apnea device and it needs to be custom-fitted to your face. Um, all those things can be custom-fitted without doing a manual process. Um, so that's kind of where we're finding our sweet spot today. Why did you end up in Chattanooga doing this? Yeah, so one of the one of the contract opportunities that I had was uh, to come to Chattanooga and help put together America's first three D printing focused accelerator program, um, which was Gig Tank. So had that track mm-hmm. about, I guess, going on three years ago now, um, and I came in and kind of helped fill out some of the technology side of that from the three D printing perspective, um, and so I helped some of the companies that came through that program, uh, like Feats and Branch, uh, develop some of their technology. Um, yeah, so that's what brought me here. Uh, I ended up really liking it here uh, in Chattanooga. It's a pretty interesting city, um, and there's a lot of good opportunities. 
Um, so decided to stay here and uh, ended up happening to be the place that I was at the time that I had the concept for Collider mm-hmm. and decided to build a team and do it here. So I think it's interesting that you you come from this, not really from the, I want to be an entrepreneur background, but I really just am super interested in this thing, this technology. Mm-hmm. So what was it like taking an interest and, and then turning it into a company um, and having to kind of be, I don't know, a businessman? Yeah, uh, well, so a couple of things. Uh, you know, number one, I've surrounded myself with people who are very good at, at that particular skill set. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I've got a great COO who's, who's got a incredible incredible background in education on the business front. Um, and so that, that was a big part of, of how I worked with that. But additionally, I'm also not strictly technical. Um, I actually... While I, while I wasn't always interested in build, building a business, starting in my late teens, I was. So the first accelerator program I went through was when I was 17. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went through a couple since then and then wow. eventually ended up at CoLab helping, you know, put together one. And so, uh, you know, a lot of the mechanisms that exist around this world of, you know, financing and building a business and, and you know, equity distributions to team members and managing people and stuff wasn't entirely new to me. Right. Um, it wasn't a, fo- it wasn't a completely foreign concept, um, okay. but also getting really good people was a very big part of that as well. Yeah. So you're, you're based in Chattanooga here and you're building this awesome startup. How have you attracted talent and what kind of talent have you realized you need to surround yourself with? Yeah. So it, the, the core team are people that were here. And so they actually, almost everybody on my team had gone through the gig tank program at one point in time. So they were engineers from other teams or, or what have you that, you know, either ended up going on to, you know, not secede or they did secede, but they weren't happy in their role at that company. And so they ended up leaving. And so uh, the kind of the core group, which is, you know, we were a small team, still five people, um, you know, came from there. Um, all of the new hires that we're looking at, though, there's one or two that are here in the area, naturally, um, but a lot of them are in other places. Um, but we're a little bit lucky, I guess I would say, from the technology perspective in that we are working on what is considered to be an extremely interesting problem to people in this space mm-hmm. um, with an extremely interesting kind of way of, of going about solving it. And so uh, people who are at great schools like you know Carnegie Mellon or, or MIT or whatever – um, we can, you know, have interviews with them and actually get them to come visit. And, um, you know, I think they're the kind of people, and this is one of the things that we focus on, who, who, you know, they would, they are so in love with this kind of technology and working on it that they would go anywhere in the world to work on sure. it. Sure. Um, and Chattanooga is not a particularly bad place to go work, you know, being, you know, best outdoor city three years in a row and things. Sure. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't hurt as an <laughs> attraction point. Sure. Um, so what you've basically done is you are kind of, there's this thing called 3d printing that everybody was raving about Mm -hmm. and you've taken it to a point where you're kind of leveling it up in a major way, but how is that going to kind of, so how's this, uh, innovation in manufacturing? And you said that there's a set market that you're really addressing. Mm -hmm. How's that going to kind of ripple into the broader supply chain? So we're building stuff, but now things can be really tailored and tuned. Mm -hmm. The batching. The, the batch sizes are no longer uh, an, an issue as much as they were previously. But what about transporting it and, and all that stuff after? Yeah. 
Yeah, so there's a lot in there. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think uh, we're going to see a lot more customized goods, right? And this kind of comes with, you know, quote unquote, the millennial generation, I guess, right? You know, so many things are tailored directly to our needs. Uh, what we see in our news feeds are, you know, take, cater to each one of us. And mm-hmm. uh, it's starting to happen with our physical products, or at least companies are starting to, they're trying to figure out how to get there. And so we see companies like Nike investing $140 million in an innovation lab. And basically their goal of that $140 million investment is to come out of the other side side with some new manufacturing process that enables them to have all their shoes be custom. Um, because, you know, even people customizing, this is an interesting thing that I learned, people customizing Nikes in, in some of the top shoe brands today is already a $2 billion market. Sure. Um, but it's all manual labor done aftermarket. Yep. Um, and so, you know, these these are the kinds of things that we're going to see. We're going to see a lot more customization. People are going to get things that are, that are tuned exactly to them, you know, uh, and so that's that's interesting, but how this is going to impact you know more of the logistical and, and kind of like boots on the ground of, of manufacturing. I think there's a few different things that I see happening. Some of them which are specific to 3D printing and or additive, and some of them aren't. And so I think one of the big ones that I see uh, happening that's not specific to additive is we're seeing. Um, uh, because of automation of and software, we're seeing manufacturing processes come in-house that typically wouldn't have been in-house. And so sure. uh, the way these are happening are either one of two ways, either number one, you know, the manufacturer is making a huge investment and bringing it in-house. I think that's happening less often. Um, and what we're seeing more commonly is we're seeing companies uh, sprout up. Uh, that they're saying, okay, we completely automated, you know, what it takes to set up a CNC machine to mill these parts. Um, and so because of that, we can put kind of, you know, a, a human that doesn't have to have, you know, 30 years of experience with CNC machines to operate them mm-hmm. on your factory floor. And we're going to have this really small, you know, X amount square foot block on your manufacturing floor. And whenever you have a customized CNC need, we're just going to be able to do it right then and there on site. Um, so I think that's interesting. Um, and that's kind of just like a trend that we're seeing is, is kind of localized um, manufacturing needs um, and 3D printing plays a role in that, but so do other manufacturing technologies sure. kind of in that space. And uh, I, I guess touching on that point, how does 3D printing coexist with the other forms of manufacturing? Is this kind of growing and, and making all the other forms of manufacturing much more impactful and effective? Yeah, yeah. So uh, definitely to some degree. So, so you know, 3D printing, for instance, you know, uh, you need X, Y, Z to, you know, little holding block on, on your machine. You can print it instead of going and milling it out of a block of metal. So like you can support traditional manufacturing processes with 3D printing, which is one way that we see kind of traditional 3D printing being used. Those are, so those are some of the big ways that we're seeing it a little bit more immediately um, versus re- completely replacing processes is, is a lot more about supporting other processes that are happening inside of a factory. Things like printing replacement parts when something's broken down, mm-hmm. uh, things of that nature are interesting. I think with what we're doing at Collider, because we can get the exact same part as you would from traditional manufacturing, with the kind of things that we're hoping to enable are, are a little more impactful than that, where um, maybe you can replace some of your part manufacturing or, you know, like let's say your Caterpillar or Komatsu or somebody like that. Inventory is, is kind of a really big thing, and I think we're going to start to see a lot of inventory, you know, warehouses and things close up or, you know, be, be repurposed. Sure. Um, and we're going to see a lot more digital inventory. Yeah. Um, and, and parts being made literally on an as-needed basis um, with, with technology like ours. And, you know, that that's actually an interesting thing just to, like, we've done, uh, like, I've seen several studies on, like, how that inventory impacts businesses' bottom line. It could be incredibly impactful. 
Absolutely. Yeah, that would be pretty cool where like <laughs> if you need a something in the interior of a truck, yes. you don't have to hold that in a warehouse out of town. Right. But you can click a button and it starts a process. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And and, and we're I think where we're gonna see this first is again kind of these lower volume slash high margin kind of spaces right now, you know, because and that's why I brought a big machinery, right? They're not selling a million of those things mm-hmm. every year. They're selling, a, you know, maybe a, you know, maybe they need twenty of those replacement parts every year. Well, it might not make sense to go through all the tooling and things, especially because uh, something I forget what it is, but it's a, it's a pretty large percentage of inventory in those spaces ends up becoming obsolete before it ever gets purchased. Sure. <laughs> so it yeah. sits on a shelf until it becomes useless. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Which uh, we were at. Um uh, and a manufacturing summit with GE, and GE is one of our partners. And um, one of their teams was talking about how they were 3D printing or using advanced manufacturing techniques for parts of their engine turbines. Right. So, what kind of price or, or margin are we talking about? Like, like, give me the the market opportunity of the low hanging fruit here. Yeah. So the low hanging fruit when it comes to things like that is what you're dealing with is it particularly like GE, for instance, in that particular application, I'm, I'm pretty familiar with it. And so like what you're dealing with there is assemblies that used to be 150 parts and, you know, who knows how many thousands of man hours to put together mm-hmm. um, can now be printed in one assembly. Um, and wow. so instead of being 150 parts, maybe it's five parts. Sure. Um, which is an incredible difference. And so if you can 3D print it and, and have it come out as a metal part, you know, that's that's a completely, that's a game changer for those types of companies. Um, you know, but what we are seeing there, and this is something that I think has to be acknowledged, is uh, we're seeing the fruits of, you know, decades worth of work, um, you know, at these mm. companies. And so for, you know, for instance, you know, GE and things, they had to come up with the QA processes for how they're going to do quality control on that type of 3D printed part. Um, and so, you know, for, for most 3D printing processes, that's going to be the case is even, you know, some of these new processes, they're not going to see, we're not going to see major applications for them for another five to 10 years because they have to figure out how to get through that. Um, which is, I, you know, that's, that's okay for some things, but at the same time, like in five to 10 years, that technology is going to get surpassed. Um, you know, and so like we, we're actually in a little bit of an advantageous position with Collider because we are doing this injection based process, which is basically identical to how they do it in traditionally manufacturing. We're just replacing the tooling. Um, and so we kind of already meet, uh, you know, kind of off the shelf, a lot of those regulations sure. and QA processes, but, but there is a whole lot of new things that are happening to be built around like powder centering processes and things to say, okay, um, we're actually starting to see, you know, QA processes having to have equipment that you would u- be used to seeing at a hospital. Um, so we need to do like an MRI on a metal printed part sure. to make sure there's no internal cracks or voids in the part, make sure there's no trap powder, things like that. Got it. Yeah. I feel like oh, as an outsider, I, the perspective when I first heard about 3D printing was that it was going to be totally disruptive. And it felt like within, you know, a few days, everything was going to be printed, and uh, yeah. you, we would all have 3D printers. Um, and so from what you've been saying, you know, that's not the case, and it's more holding hands with traditional manufacturing and kind of help boost innovation all around. Mm-hmm. But for people who aren't in the industry, can you give us just a, better, a clearer idea of where we're at in the timeline of, of um, 3D printing? Like, is this the beginning? Is it, about, is it about to kind of really just come onto the scene everywhere? Mm-hmm. What does it look like, really, behind the scenes? 
Uh, for industrial use, I would say we're on the pathway to, and, and this comes, you know, kind of straight from like the Gartner hype cycle is we are kind of on the path of enlightenment for industrial use. Um, and and we, we have major companies like GE to thank for that, um, for, for laying the groundwork over the last 10 to 15 years, uh, putting in the, the R&D budgets that now everybody else is, is getting to learn from and, and kind of understand how they can leverage the technology. And so mm-hmm. um, I, I, it's not going to, we're, we're not going to see it everywhere ourselves like as a consumer um, but likely there's going to be a lot behind the scenes that 3d printing has touched and so what you know your part that you're going to get in your phone is probably not going to be 3d printed but it doesn't mean that your phone wasn't touched by a 3d printed part in the manufacturing process right and i think that's going to be the bigger way that we're going to see it um, i do think that uh you know if you are in the customized products you know like if you're buying something that's custom to you it is much more likely that the part that you're going to get in your hand is 3d printed uh, directly. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that, that is starting to happen. Um, in fact, I think uh, last year was the first year that 3D printing broke. Uh, 30% of all parts manufactured last year using an industrial 3D printer were end-use parts, which was pretty huge. Um, and so, you know, that, that future is coming. Um, it's a little bit slower. It's a little bit further down the road, and it's definitely more specific to a lot of customizable products and things of that nature. In the meantime, it's a lot more likely that the things you get in your hands were simply touched by a 3D printed part. The, the one thing we have here is uh, you've made some, uh, obviously you made some great progress and uh, it, monumental achievements, but what would you say as the founder has been uh, kind of your most proud moment leading Collider to date? Oh, geez. Um, yeah, so I mean, I did, I did, like, I don't know, I've, I've thought about that before and it's really difficult to say. I mean, I think the obvious thing is like shipping your first <laughs> your first parts out sure. the door that are PO, you know, like, and, and so I think, you know, like being able to work with companies like we have been over the last six months or so, kind of printing parts, making sure that we can meet their quality control demands, and then actually having them transition from being a pilot kind of customer who's not paying for parts and you know, like we're just doing things to make sure that we're good enough, quote unquote. And then all of a sudden the transition from that to, oh, we are good enough and we're willing to pay you dollars and cents for that um, was a pretty incredible thing to feel. Um, mm-hmm. And then I, you know, I think aside from that, it's, it's definitely got to be all about the team. I mean, uh, it's been a people thing, you know, like when I'm sitting in meetings, you know, and, and I'm sitting there next to somebody on my team who jumps in and takes the bull by the horns on a certain subject matter. And uh, it, it just, it's like, okay, I've got the right, How big is the your right team? person here. Like I said, it's only five people five, right now. Yeah. That's um, pretty awesome. Yeah. And uh, on the flip side, real quick, uh, what is kind of, what was that testing moment that really made you and your team better through the end of it? Uh, the testing moment, like things that were like chested the team together. Yeah. Oh, geez. Or, or that you, you, you're just better <laughs> for, you know. Yeah. Uh, we've had some, we've had some tough times, uh, for sure. Right. It's a startup. And so, um, you know, I think we, 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 we go through, you know, like we, we've gone through the thing where like, Hey, um, people are, you know, like fundraising's tough. We're going to go ahead and take a break on payroll for a sec while we, while we do things. And like being able to see that we hold together as a team through that people still come in every day. People are still working hard. People still get it and understand where we're headed. Sure. Um, you know, so, so I think those were like some of the biggest moments that, that kind of test us is, is kind of like the, the dark times, right? Um, so to speak. And, and seeing the team secede through that uh, has, been, has been pretty exciting. Is it a matter of your team, everyone on your team just so firmly believes in what you're working towards? How do you kind of build that culture where when those struggles come, you, people don't quit? 
Um, I do think it's a lot about believing in, in the vision and where we're going, but I also think one of the things that I've learned about, and this has been one of my weaknesses over time, has been about communication. And so um, I think that when the team understands exactly where everything's at in the court, um, you know, mm-hmm. they know where the ball's at, so to speak, everybody is a little more invested and and has a little bit more of a firm belief because they they're they're a part of where that ball's located. And so, you know, if it's like, hey, we've got this conversation going with this XYZ customer, that could be a, you know, a 5,000 part order or something. Um, it's it's you know, it's it's not only do they just believe in it in their heart and their brain, mm-hmm. but also it's like, okay, here's a thing on the horizon that I can see that's tangible. Right. That, that also helps back up that. Yeah, and you're part of the whole story. You're not just kind of isolated into your own little world. So you yeah, feel exactly. okay, that's great. Um I don't have anything else. Santosh, anything else? I'm all good. Okay. All right, cool. Thanks so Appreciate much. Appreciate it, Graham. Yeah, Thank great. you. All right, that's it for me and Santosh here at Dynamo Discussions. We will be back in two weeks with another chat with another great founder. In the meantime you can find some excellent content around logistics tech at hitthebutton.com. If you want to learn more about Dynamo, go to dynamo.vc. Applications are still open for our, our second accelerator program. They close February 19th, so don't delay. This week's episode was brought to you by GE Ventures. It's more than just a capital provider. GE Ventures provides unrivaled access to a global network of GE expertise and resources. Okay, be back in two weeks.